Hi, I'm Chris Wigley, CEO of Genomics England. I've spent my career at the intersection of technology, ethics, and human stories. Now I lead the amazing team here at Genomics England. We're trying to bring the benefits of genomic medicine to everyone. And that involves accelerating genomic research and also working with the NHS to bring genomics into the heart of healthcare. Genomics is a word that can trigger really strong responses, hope, fear, anger, and there's a lot of information out there, but it's not all accessible to non-experts. And there are some myths out there. So we want to talk more about this word, the G word, genomics. That's what this podcast is about. Welcome to the G word. So it is my huge pleasure to welcome to the G Word today, Professor Kate Tatton-Brown. Kate holds a wealth of knowledge and is a lady of many hats across her roles as clinical director and head of the genomics education program at Health Education England. She's also a consultant in clinical genetics at St. George's University Hospital and a professor in clinical genetics and genomics education with St. George's, uh, which is at the University of London. Kate, welcome to the pod. Thank you, Chris, and thank you very much for inviting me. Not at all. It's great to have you. So you are someone who has both, I guess, pursued a lot of educational interests yourself and is now thoughtfully engaged in the pursuit of education for others around these complex topics of genetics, genomics and personalised medicine as all of these things kind of come more and more into the mainstream in the NHS. Maybe if we start with the basics, genetics and genomics are coming more and more into the mainstream of healthcare. How do we help everyone to understand what they are and how they fit into medicine, I guess, like patients, doctors, all of the others. And and what's your specific focus there? So I think things have transformed over the last two decades. I I first moved into genetics at the turn of the millennium. And at that point, we were really restricted to a gene-by-gene sequencing approach. And that was incredibly laborious and it was very, very costly. And uh, genetics at that time, uh, when I was in medical school, certainly was taught in a really um, uh, complicated way. And I think people often had this experience of Mendel's P sitting on the back of back back row of a lecture theatre, nodding off to sleep with capital A's and little A's. And I think the whole world of genetics at that turn of the millennium was something that was a little bit impenetrable. It was undertaken by boffins in ivory towers. It wasn't something that was applicable across medicine. And then uh, the new technology, so whole genome sequencing technologies, and we call the, the family of technologies collectively next generation sequencing technologies came on board. And that have absolutely transformed our access to genetic material or to the genome. And when I try to explain this to families and patients or indeed medical students, I like to use the analogy of a gene being a bit like a book. So in the old uh, Sanger gene by gene sequencing era, we would read one book at a time. And each book would take about three months to read and it would cost about $1,000 per gene sequence. And uh, that very laborious, costly sequencing was exemplified by the Human Genome Project, which happened in the 10 years spanning uh, the turn of the millennium. And that uh, took 10 years, as I said, to complete a many, many billions of pounds. So roll on to now. In that analogy, sorry, one, so one book there is one gene. 
one book is one gene, absolutely. And so we have about and we 20, have twenty-two thousand genes. Exactly. So <laughs> you've got your library <laughs> packed, packed full of books or packed full of genes. And if you imagine going into that library and reading each one at a time, it's going to take ages and ages to read. So the new technologies allow us to read all of them in one one experiment in parallel, which is why it's also called multiple parallel sequencing. And that is much cheaper. It costs less than a thousand dollars or a thousand pounds per genome now. And it's incredibly fast. So you can actually get the data from that within a couple of days. So that faster, cheaper sequencing has meant that genomic data is no longer restricted to the ivory tower to uh, research, to really uh, expensive forms of diagnosis. It means that we can now push that genomic data out across the healthcare specialties where people can start using that data to diagnose patients and increasingly to manage patients. And then there's the holy grail of can we use genomic data to also prevent people developing disease? Got it. And so at the risk of stretching your analogy too far, here goes. We now have this ability to read all of this information in a hugely parallel way. And we have doctors, nurses, clinical geneticists, uh, genetic counsellors, and so on, who need to, I guess, both be able to read, but also, and here's where maybe the, the analogy snaps, do kind of literary, literary criticism, right? Or sort of interpret poetry, because it's not necessarily immediately straightforward what the quote-unquote words on the page mean, so to speak. So that's absolutely right. Uh, no, I think the analogy still works. It's still holding up. So, I, <laughs> <laughs> so I, I, uh, the generation of the data is now so much easier than it used to be. But actually, the interpretation of that data is really challenging still. And it's not just the interpretation of the, the basic data for which you need highly skilled bioinformaticians who are sifting out normal variation from disease-causing variation. I'll come back to that. But then there's also that filtering system happened, actually interpreting that report that is falling on your desk. So if I come back to that, the, the, the initial filtering of that data, if we look at each one of our genomes, we each have about 5 million differences from the reference genome and those differences we call normal genomic variation and they're really important because they make us unique they drive evolution and it is possible that combinations of that variation are responsible for uh, the development of, of more complex disease and that's an area that's currently quite uncharted but will be I think the, the results of that will be filtering down in the future into patient management but it's always important to remember that background normal genomic variation, because when you're trying to find that one single highly penetrant variant amongst that background normal variation, that's a really, really tough task. And, you know, people refer to the needle in the haystack. It's like finding that uh, Mendelian trait that is the needle in the haystack of normal genomic variation. And bioinformaticians, as I said, are highly skilled at that. And they use various algorithms to tease out those data, and uh, which will result in the report that is given to the clinician, not containing 5 million different variants, but uh, frequently doesn't show anything, or may show a number of a small number of variants. But it's really important that our clinicians 
know that, first of all, if that report comes back as not showing anything, it doesn't mean that there isn't something genomic going on. It just means that something hasn't been identified within the context of our current knowledge and our current technologies. But they also need to understand that there may be a variant that's identified which is of uncertain significance. So one that there isn't enough data to say it's either clearly causative or it's clearly one of these normal background benign variants. So we're sitting on the fence there. But then there's also uh, another uh, area that we really need to make sure that our clinicians are aware of. And that is, although that variant may look pathogenic or may look as though it's disease causing, it may not actually be responsible for the condition that your patient is presenting to you as a clinician with. And so it's really important that the clinician always scrutinizes that report and always looks at that genomic variant in the context of their patient and with an understanding of both their patient's phenotype or clinical presentation and the phenotype or clinical presentation that is more usually associated with that variant. And that's a really key bit of information for clinicians and something that is frequently overlooked and is is one of my great soapbox things that it's important that as an educator, I make sure that our clinicians who are increasingly reading these reports are aware of. Yeah. And at the risk of diving into another analogy, uh, here goes, I broke my hand last year um, in, a, in a fall off my bike, which was really painful and annoying. And when I had it x-rayed at the, at the hospital, it looked really bad. There was a sort of the two bits of bone were not that close to each other. It was all twisted and so on. And the doctor looked at the x-ray and said, oof, not, not good at all. But then when we took the temporary cast off and he looked at the hand, said, actually, the hand movement is okay, right? And so we went back and forth, should we operate, should we not operate? And eventually agreed, we should not operate. I said, but the x-ray looks really bad, right? And the doctor said, well, look, I could operate on you and that would make the x-ray look better, but it wouldn't make your hand look better, right? So I'm not here to operate on the x-ray. I'm here to operate on a human being. That's a great point, right? And I guess to, say, to some extent what we're saying is we can't, just like the x-ray, we can't rely just on looking at the DNA and then make a decision on the back of just looking at the DNA. We have to take that in the context of how a human being is kind of interacting with a doctor. Absolutely right. Absolutely right. So it's in the context of that human being, that patient who is sitting in front of you. But also the other thing about genomics that is uh, sometimes overlooked, it's in the context of the family. So this is genetic material that is inherited Mm. frequently, not always. We do see uh, de novo mutations, particularly neurodevelopmental disorders. But it's always so important that as well as interpreting that variant in the context of that patient's phenotype, you're interpreting and feeding back that information in the context of that family, because that information will likely be relevant for other people in that kindred, that pedigree, that family. Absolutely. And so into into this complex mix of technology, medicine and kind of uh, advancement comes the genomics education program. (laughs) How does the work of Health Education England and uh, your work on the genomics education program kind of start to, I guess, address some of these issues or capture some of these opportunities? So it's an enormous task, enormous task. So I think our remit is uh, to upskill the 1.3 million of the NHS workforce to understand and adopt genomic medicine into their clinical practice. And so uh, uh, there's, there's no small, small task ahead of us. And uh, I, as you probably realise, I feel passionately about genomics. I feel passionately about education. And I think 
Genomics and genomic data are truly transformative of the care that we are delivering for patients and families. And I think it is essential that people understand genomics, understand the power of genomics, but they also understand the potential pitfalls so they can use genomic data effectively. And so uh, within the genomics education programme, we are really trying to harness the enthusiasm out there in the system with people uh, understanding genomics, using genomics, but we also are hoping to teach people by stealth. And I think uh, this is this is a, a plucking a figure from the ether, but I reckon about 5% of the healthcare workforce at the moment are proactively seeking out genomic educational experiences. And so they're taking themselves off because, because they're excited about it, uh, because they're engaged, they're taking themselves off to courses to learn more about genomics in order to augment their clinical practices. And I think it's really important that we uh, provide packages of learning for that 5% that are really engaging and speak to different learning styles. And I often talk about the ladder of learning. So we have CPD courses, we have uh, longer week to two week to three week courses, and then we have master's level programmes as well that we are all delivering through the genomics education program, often in collaboration with higher education institutes as well. That's particularly with the master's level programs. And uh, in terms of thinking about the different types of learning, we uh, we do podcasts, uh, we do videos, we do discussions, we do uh, articles, we do massive open online courses. And then, as I say, we, we are collaborating to do a number of different master's programs as well for different areas of the healthcare workforce. And we really hope to grow that 5% to 10% to 20% to 50%. So increasingly, people are seeking out genomic learning. But in the meantime, we need to reach that 95% of the workforce who are not seeking out genomics educational learning opportunities. And uh, this is our learning by stealth or just-in-time learning. So we have developed a flagship resource, which is called Genotes, and uh, Genotes has two tiers to it. Uh, tier one is the just-in-time element. It is very succinct. It's written to a very strict template, and it's aligned to the test directory so that it really holds the clinician's hands to choose the right test for the right patient at the right time. And then we have different flavours of tier one resources for feeding back results to really support the clinician to understand the genomic report and understand what to feed back to patients and families. So those tier one uh, resources, as I say, are brief, they're succinct, they're designed to be con consumed efficiently and quickly in clinic. But peppered through those tier one resources are a number of hooks for learning that people can then follow, hopefully motivated by interest, but perhaps by this realisation that they need to know more, into this web of tier two resources. And the tier two is uh, an encyclopedia. It's the engine of Genotes. And we are writing all of the tier two resources to, again, some strict criteria. So no tier two resource should be longer than 15 to 20 minutes in length. We're using uh, lots of different media. And the idea is that these tier two resources can be assembled to create different learning packages. So a learner can chart a bespoke learning journey through that tier two. And uh, as you know, I like my analogies. I, I tend to use the analogy of uh, tier two being a bit like each resource a mosaic tile. 
and you can assemble those mosaic tiles together to create different pictures. So it's going to be enormously powerful, uh, that tier two resource. And uh, at the moment, we, we've got something like 60 or 70 tier two resources created. The aspiration is to get to north of a thousand. So it'll be truly available for people across the NHS to assemble for training packages, to train to assemble for individual learning journeys, to be there, to be absolutely useful for anyone that wants to use it. And give us a sense of what one of those tiles might be. Um, what's an example of a kind of unit of knowledge in, the, in this context? So really, we, really, we are covering all bases. So we have developed a fundamental principles package. So what is a gene? What is a chromosome? How is our genetic material packaged? What is autosomal dominant inheritance? So all those fundamental principles. And ideally, that fundamental principles package will be translated into the undergraduate curricula across medicine, nursing, midwifery. And actually, in a previous previous life, life I was uh, lead for um, genomic education at the Academy of Medical Royal Colleges, and I pulled together a syllabus in that role. And uh, so the fundamental package that we have developed for tier two in genomes is very much mapped to the fundamentals part of that genomic syllabus that I pulled together for the Academy. So uh, that there's fundamentals, there's all the different genomic technologies, there's all the NHS structures. So what is a GMSA? What is GLH? Uh, we are hoping to pull some together on Genomics England, and I was talking to your colleagues yesterday about this. We would like to do a number, and we are already, we have lots and lots of different conditions. So for instance, uh, I, I have the privilege of chairing the newborn screening educational working group. So really thinking about the educational resources that will underpin this, you know, absolutely you know, flagship uh, programme that is being led by Genomics England. And uh, one of the things we hope to have is every single condition that will be screened for on that newborn screening panel, there will be a tier two resource for it. So, uh, you know, it, it is hugely aspirational, but I think it's essential that we have that so that uh, if someone has, has is, is involved in the newborn screening, they have somewhere to go that not only do they know how to safely uh, deliver that pathway, but they also have resources that they can upskill themselves and also use to upskill the, the families that they are supporting. Wow. And that's that's a mammoth undertaking, right? Just in itself, irrespective of the size of the, uh, the challenge of getting to a thousand uh, sort of knowledge modules. Yeah. It, it, it is mammoth, Chris. But what I would say is that this is the most extraordinary collaboration that's happening across the country. So we now have nine working groups, um, each one representing a different specialty area. Those working groups are multi-professional and each working group contains between 15, 20 people. So this is an enormous crowdsourcing effort. And I really think that it, you know, it really exemplifies what I think the genomics education programme should be. I think we are here in the JEP to facilitate the development and the delivery of good education and training. We're a relatively small team. We have you know, amazing expertise in that team. And I feel so privileged to have joined the team. You know, they really are uh, phenomenal. But I think the purpose of our team is to catalyze the expertise and the knowledge and that intelligence from our community and then bring it together 
distill and bottle that expertise and then share it again across the community. So uh, it is an enormous undertaking, but it's an undertaking that is happening uh, on, on the back of nearly, nearly 200 people in our community beavering away. Um, amazing. And so there's a fair amount of uh, air traffic control, I'm sure, in uh, bringing, there, bringing there all of these country disparate sources together. <laughs> that, that's absolutely right. And Kate, you've mentioned a couple of things that I just want to see if we should disentangle or not. Um, one is you mentioned kind of undergraduate curricula and people who are becoming new doctors. And the second is you mentioned people who are already doctors or nurses or other kinds of professionals across the um, across the NHS who are maybe self-learning, who are maybe engaging with a kind of structured set of modules for a particular purpose. Is there a distinction in your mind between kind of training new doctors and helping existing doctors kind of gain new skills? Do you think about this differently or is it actually similar enough that the same kind of tools can work for both situations? So uh, I think that the, some of the knowledge is the same, but then the application of that knowledge is different and the approach to how you teach the people is also different. So um, uh, if if I, I might describe a little bit about our competency sandwich and we realised the other day that possibly sandwich wasn't the right name for it. And it sounds like a very fancy sandwich. <laughs> I think when people talk about competency, they normally fall asleep. So <laughs> it's a way of making it a little bit more accessible. So the idea behind this is that there are a number of competencies that I think should be, should be uh, taught across the undergraduate curriculum. And this is really knowledge-based competencies. These are things that people should know about in genomics. And they uh, should be there in, in all of the, the healthcare professional undergraduate curricula. And that bleeds into that postgraduate area, because actually then you need to start applying those fundamental principles once you're in training. And so ideally, we would have people graduating from medical school, from nursing school, from from their undergraduate school into the the clinical setting and then then start applying that knowledge in that clinical setting. At the other end, the other side of the sandwich or at the top of our walnut whip, we have our genomic advisors, which are they are our um, are people who are really spearheading the integration of genomics into healthcare. And uh, we, we did a lot of work pulling together a framework for national, regional and local genomic advisors and what their areas of competency should be. But there should be genomic advisors representing each of the specialty areas and in each of the professions. So these are people with very high level competencies who are supporting their colleagues and really making strategic decisions for the integration of genomic medicine. And then the meat of the sandwich, or perhaps our cream of our walnut whip, is uh, an area where you've got your base level competencies. Perhaps you're not wanting to be a genomic advisor, but you're using genomics in your clinical practice. And it's too much to say to people, learn everything there is to know about genomic medicine. That's not appropriate. That's not applicable. So actually, we've developed an approach called the Clinical Pathway Initiative or the CPIs. And what that does is really try to highlight what you need to know as an individual practitioner for your own area of specialty practice. And uh, we suggest to people that they identify a clinical pathway, a linear, very, very high level clinical pathway, and divide that into high level steps, 
map those steps to the competencies required to deliver each one of those steps, in turn map those to the education and training tools, and then map that to the, the workforce required to deliver that step. So you end up having this far more... Wow, so it's a kind of multi-dimensional game of chess. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> and it's what it is doing, it's building up this competency framework of saying that actually there is this whole landscape of genomic medicine, but for you doing your job, we would expect you to know X, Y, and Z. These are the resources that we have developed so that you can feel competent to deliver that job of work. And there are ways you can expand and develop into other areas as well. So um, that, you know, I think that there are different flavours between postgraduate and undergraduate, coming back to your, your first question. But I think it's even more complicated. I think it, there's the undergraduate setting where I think we just have to get into the curricula and we, we you know, that's not easy, but we just need to be in into those professional curricula across the board. And I think that's an absolute no brainer. But then the postgraduate setting is far more nuanced because I think it has to be applicable to an individual's practice and an individual's aspirations as to where they want to be in that genomic setting. Do they want to be spearheading it or do they want to be doing something alongside their practice, but delivering genomics effectively and safely. And in the undergraduate curricular point, you're saying we need to get it into the curriculum. Is that kind of, we're using lots of analogies today, is that kind of like a tea bag that you dip into the hot water of the curriculum and it infuses the whole curriculum? Um, that when we're learning about heart disease, we learn about genomics in the context of heart disease. When we're learning about the liver, we learn about genomics in the context of the liver or something. Or, or is there a, a specific kind of, okay, this week, dudes we're studying genomics you know I mean how how does that look yeah uh again I love the analogy I, I will pinch that one I'm sure <laughs> <laughs> but uh I think both actually in different so I'm going to speak from the medical undergraduate curricula because that's what I've had most in my undergraduate setting in my university setting most to do with um, and I think different uh, medical schools will approach this in different ways. And uh, I think there's actually a bit of both. So some medical schools will teach those fundamental principles all piggybacked on a given clinical setting. So as you say, you would learn about a, a, a cardiac case and using that as the scaffold to then introduce perhaps autosomal dominant inheritance. What is a gene? What is uh, others will take? These, you know, a module on genomics. These are the these are the things that you need to know. I don't think there's necessarily a best fit because we all know that people learn in different ways. And actually, I think the key thing is that students need to choose the medical school that that suits their way of learning. I also think there is a hybrid model where you you can present the fundamental principles, so you learn them. And I think that could be done online. And I, I'm saying that because I've got a vested interest in that and that we are developing this fundamentals package that uh, we hope will be engaging, will be available there you know, across the undergraduate uh, setting. But I think you can learn it and then you can apply it. And we all know that uh, learning improves the repetition. You've got to use something, you've got to record it. But also a really powerful way of learning is learning through error. So you want people to make mistakes in a safe setting. So I think in many ways, the optimal way of teaching is to provide people with those fundamental tools. What are the principles? What is a gene? What is a chromosome? Uh, teach them that and then say, 
now try and apply what you've learned to this simulated clinical setting. And simulation might just be a written scenario. It doesn't need to be something all singing or dancing like virtual reality. And you, you, you then stress test that knowledge. And if people are making mistakes in stress testing that knowledge, that's a good thing because then they will be less likely to make that mistake again. So I think you want both the teabag approach and the teabag to stay in the, in the cup of tea would be my, my suggestion. But I think we do need to recognize that, uh, people learn in different ways. And we really, really need to, uh, I think we need to encourage people to reflect on their own way of learning and then access resources to, to really, uh, meet those, those, uh, you know, ha- how they optimally learn. And it's funny because when you were talking earlier about, you know, walking, uh, you know, you'd like to walk on a Teams meeting. I thought you're a kinesthetic learner, Chris. You like to walk and learn and assimilate. And it's, it's you know, it is that that's a very recognised way of, of accessing information. I'm very visual. I have to see things written down. Yeah, I'm, I'm an inveterate sketcher. <laughs> <laughs> As uh, all of the, all of the teams that you know exist, will say, I, I, I constantly draw things, whether on sort of <laughs> computers or bits of paper or sort of back of my hand. Um, so no, definitely. Um, and so maybe sort of bring this to life a bit. If I'm a, I'm making it up, kind of mid fifties doctor who's maybe in a hospital setting and who's a liver specialist, and I probably did my undergraduate degree. 30 years ago before the human genome pro- project even happened and I've been successful in my career um, and I feel like I kind of know the basics what's but maybe I want to engage a bit more how what's the way into genotes the whole genomics education program you know and how is it relevant for someone like that so if if your mid-50s liver specialist isn't taking themselves off to you know and and you know there will be so many demands on that individual's time that it's completely understandable that they may not be taking themselves off to a genomics course, especially when they don't see the current relevance. And I think that's when when people become engaged is when they're about to see a patient and they think, actually, it'd be really helpful if I knew a bit more about genomics at this moment in time. And you can you can show that relevance two ways. So that's really where where Genotes was born out of that in the moment clinical experience. Let's capture that recognition of the need to know about genomics and use that to draw people in to genomics education. So that's that's where that in the moment scenario comes. But we can also do scenario based learning. So if someone is engaged enough to say, well, let's just see what's out there. I'd like to learn a bit more about what is relevant to me then you can do it through these simulated scenarios. And uh, again, this is a a, a project that we're just starting. So uh, really trying to show the relevance to different individuals in the NHS based around patient simulated patient experience so that they it, it speaks to them as an individual clinician. They can say, actually, I can see having uh, watched that scenario and then gone on that learning journey as a consequence of watching that scenario what I need to know and why I need to know it so I think a lot of it is pinning the education on relevance whether that's in real-time relevance or something that's more simulated 
Got it. And so from, from simulated patient environments to, to real patient environments, if, it seems like a no-brainer that helping healthcare professionals across the NHS learn more about genomics is a good thing. Where does the rubber actually hit the road? Is this kind of the doctor can then order a new test? Is this the nurse who's uh, helping a patient through their whole journey has a better understanding of what's going on? How does it actually change patient care? So uh, I think there's a number of ways it changes patient care. I think the first one is access. So uh, one of the great drivers of the genomic medicine service and the integration of whole genome sequencing across the landscape is to democratise access to testing. And if you are seeing a clinician in southern England or a clinician in northern England, you have to have the same access to testing. It can't be because one clinician has gone off to a course that they will fill the forms in for you, but because the other clinician hasn't, no forms are filled in. So I think that's one of the, the first really critical things, that it's an awareness and it's breaking down the barriers of fear, because I think it comes back to uh, the back row of the lecture theatre again, that a lot of people are fearful of genomics. They think it's terribly complicated and they would rather someone else filled those forms in and went there because uh, they they are, it's unknown. They don't know what what they're meant to be doing in terms of requesting, but, you know, down the line, what they're meant to be doing in terms of uh, feeding back those results. So it's empowering the clinician to feel comfortable to offer that test to that individual sitting in front of them. And then uh, having embarked on that journey, it is really critical that that clinician knows what to do along that journey. So they do know how to fill in those forms. They know how to appropriately consent that individual. Remembering what we talked about earlier, that it's not a binary thing doing genomic testing, that there are all sorts of flavours of results that come back. And it's important that they are discussed with the individual and that, that you know the shades of grey are covered in that consent process. But critically, also the implication to the wider family members are, are also taken into account at that, that preliminary conversation. And then the, the sample goes to lab and it comes back. And again, it's critical that that uh, clinician understands that report. They understand what they're, they're, they're reading. They understand about variants of uncertain significance and the different classes of variant. And they are able to interpret that result in the context of the phenotype of that patient. Because we do know that errors happen. That error can be amplified in, in families. And I've certainly seen that happen, where a variant has been incorrectly uh, classified and then other testing has been done in the family, which has led to, to other unforeseen consequences. So there, there are so many touch points to educate clinicians along that, that pathway from identifying a patient who, who should have access to genomic testing through to feeding back the results. And then finally, a really critical part is knowing when to refer whether that's referring on to clinical genetics to have that specialist input to genomic counselling or to other specialty areas. So that there's, there's a whole ton of education to be done just around that, that single pathway. And I love your focus on, um, on confidence there as well. And it feels like you could almost rebrand as the sort of genomic empowerment <laughs> programme, right? That you want people to just have that sense of, OK, I know, I know what's going on. That's great. I'm conscious we're going to have a short while left together. Let me maybe lift our, uh, lift our heads to the future. Maybe by the time that the current undergraduates are in the position of uh, hypothetical sort of mid-50s um, 
liver clinician earlier. Um, so let's say in sort of 30 years time or so, what will we be focused on in terms of genomic education and empowerment? You know, will it be like having a kind of literacy program in the NHS? It just won't exist because it will have been successful. We assume that everyone can read, so we don't have a, you know, we don't have a literacy program for, for doctors. Or will there still be a focus on genomics as a, a thing? Or will it look completely different? You know, what will, what will it look like? It's fascinating thinking about it. I, I, I think we need to think about genomics and we need to think about education, because I think both are going to massively, massively uh, change, improve. Um, you know, there'll be bumps along the way, but I think we will be living in a very different space than we're living in now. I, I have been in genomics now for 22 years and it has transformed in those 22 years. Our knowledge and our access to the genome is completely unrecognisable from what it was when I started in genomics in, in 2000. I suspect that trajectory will continue. I think we're at the tip of the iceberg. And I think we spend a lot of time thinking about whole genome sequencing and talking about it as though it's the end of the path. I think we're just at the beginning of the path. I think there's massively uncharted territory out there. You know, we haven't got a clue really what a lot of the non-coding space does. We still have the whole of the epigenome to really get to grips with. And that's going to be fascinating. I think we need to think about, you know, how DNA is packaged and how that's determining expression as well. And that whole orchestration of the, the epigenome. And I think that, and we come back to our normal genomic variation as well. We haven't even begun to mine that normal genomic variation, understand the complexity and the nuances of disease. So, you know, some uh, one particular condition that I research called Soto syndrome, we will see people with exactly the same genetic variant and totally different presentations. You know, they have basically the same, but their learning difficulty can range from very mild through to really very severe with exactly the same genetic variation. And why is that? You know, it's probably lots of uh, stochastic factors, environmental factors, but also that background normal genetic variation is likely to be impacting upon that. So I think I think we are at the beginning of genomics. So I think your, your undergraduate who's going to be in 30 years, your mid-50s hepatologist, I think they will, you know, the genome, fine, you know, done that. But there'll be so many other things, so many other things coming into that sphere that will be so important to understand the, the basic uh, alphabet of, of the genome. Yeah. And I mean, and without wanting to without wanting to make everyone's heads explode, that's quote unquote just DNA, right? And then you get into RNA and transcriptomics and proteomics and metabolomics and so on. Totally, totally. And I think, I mean, there is there is. I mean, it, it, it's, it's, we have some exciting years ahead of us. I really do. And I think um, one of my, my key messages to people when they're talking about whole genome sequencing is just think of this as the start, not the end of the journey. And I think too frequently it is, it is talked about as though it's the end of the journey. And, you know, what do we do now? Because we read the genome. It's, there's, there's a lot, a lot more to do. Um, but then, you know, thinking about, I was saying that, the accessing education in 30 years time. So we've got, I think genomics will be very, very different, but I also think our access to education will be very different. And I'm fascinated to see how we go there. And I am a big advocate of online learning. I think, uh, especially as we're emerging from COVID, people are now very familiar with the online space. 
And I think there's a lot of work to be done to be able to empower people to access learning at their own time, pursuing their own interests and their own needs, but doing so in a very engaging way, but also underpinned by social learning. And uh, we're working very hard in this space at the moment. Uh, we, we are setting up a, a new organisation called a Genomic Training Academy, a GTAC. Uh, we're doing that in collaboration with NHS uh, EI, so NHS England and Innovation. And uh, this academy will be there to serve the specialist genomics workforce, certainly initially. And uh, it will consist of a virtual hub and then in-person spokes that will be mapped to the seven GLHs. And we're hoping to include the devolved nations as well. But that virtual hub is a blank canvas for how we could do e-learning, online learning in this engaging way, underpinned by these social constructivist principles and a way that really pulls people in and keeps them there and gives them a very fulfilling uh, learning journey. So I think I think. Our universities, this is a microcosm, but our universities, our teaching institutions, I think they will be a very, very different place. And I think the brick mortar of our of our current universities may be uh, changed into the, 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 the you know, virtual bricks and mortar using avatars and uh, thinking about more that virtual learning space. And so sitting in 2022, I have to, uh, I guess, say the M word at this point. Are we all going to be learning about genomics and multi-omics in the metaverse? Um, <laughs> you mentioned avatars. Um, are we all going to be inhabiting kind of, uh, you know, zero gravity uh, towers in the sky um, as we learn about <laughs> you know, Mendelian variants? Perhaps, perhaps. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, I'm going to go and uh, order a VR headset online and um, I look forward to Genomics Education Programme 3.0 um, being uh, hosted in the metaverse. <laughs> but uh, in the meantime, thanks so much for making the time and uh, especially at a time when you're so busy building the, the future of genomics education um, to come and talk to us. Really, really appreciate it. Thank you very much, Chris. I've had a very enjoyable hour. Thank you. that's all for this episode. Thanks for listening to this discussion about the G word and for joining us on this journey to highlight and debate the implications of genomics as it comes to the mainstream of healthcare and society. Remember to subscribe to the G word on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. If you have views on these topics, if you have a suggestion for someone we should interview, then do write to us at podcast at genomicsengland.co.uk. And do remember, if you've enjoyed listening, that giving us a five-star review really helps other people find out about the series. I'd appreciate it very much. See you on the next episode of The G Word. Mm-hmm.